You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. When I was 10 years old, our family moved from South Carolina, a small town named King Street, to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and that's pretty much where we spent the rest of our life until I moved after college, and so I kind of consider Chattanooga where I grew up, even though I didn't get there until I was about 10. What I remember about that move is that, and I, don't, I didn't know this then, but looking back, uh, when my parents told us, hey, we're going to move to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and, is that my dad took a 60% pay cut to make that move. <clears throat> now, as a 10-year-old, I didn't think a thing about that. He didn't tell me that then, but that was later information. But looking back, I'm like, wow, Dad, that's a pretty bold move. Like, uh, to go from a really good job in South Carolina, he's working for the government in education, and took a job as a professor at a Christian college, and 60% pay cut. That's three kids, and we're all kind of in that, you know, junior high, elementary age. Like, wow, that's a, that's a steep. You must have really felt like that was the Lord's will. And he did. He and mom both felt like this was the right thing in the right time. And I'm glad they did because it proved to be a wise move and God's will and uh, just some great memories of all that happened there in Tennessee. I'm really thankful that my dad trusted the Lord and my mom as well and made that move. In fact, I don't recall a single moment in Tennessee that I went without a meal. Did you know that? Not a single one. I don't recall the light bill never being paid. I don't recall any Christmas being odd. I didn't remember any birthday. I just don't have any, any memories of our needs not being met. In fact, we had more than our needs. Did you know that? We just, I didn't think a thing about it. God was faithful to, to our family every step of the way, even though... From the outside, that seemed like, oh, wow, 60%. Is that really a good thing? And I can say to you this, that even in times when our church there and the school that my dad worked at was undergoing some difficult situations. A couple of times there were some discipline issues organizational-wide, and uh, it was probably God's hand upon that place to chasten us a bit, to kind of bring us back around. Even in those moments... God was faithful to his people. I thought of that story several times in the last few weeks as I read 1 Kings 17. Because that's just a small, microscopic, perhaps, window of what we see play out here in a much larger and even more specific way. So take your Bibles, would you? Turn to 1 Kings 17. Here's what we're going to see today. I'll go ahead and show it to you way up front. You'll see it emerge from the text. We're going to see that God takes care of his remnant people even in the middle of national judgment. All right? That's the truth we're going to see unfold in this chapter. And I think you'll see the faithfulness of God, our king, play out in beautiful ways. It's 1 Kings chapter 17. We're actually going to finish the end of 16, and then we'll go into 17. You'll notice that this is a somewhat of a different looking icon for this series, and here's why. Because we're going to take about four weeks and look even more closely at our king 
the one to whom all the kings point. Are you with me? So this is kind of a mini-series within the series. We've been a couple of years now in the kings and the king. We're now going to take four weeks to finish out 1 Kings, and we're going to take a closer look at the king. Now, those of you who are thinking, well, is the king Jesus or is the king God? There may be those who are kind of wanting to specifically ask that question and get it exactly right. Well, the king is our Trinitarian God. How does that sound for an answer? Okay. So in prophetic ways, often the scriptures look forward to the king who is Jesus. Yes. But Isaiah and David in the Psalms are both clear that God is king of all the earth. True. So our best understanding is to say, well, we don't get all this. It's Trinitarian in nature. That's a mystery to some degree, but the Bible teaches it. So we're good saying that God is king. And so the Trinitarian God, yes, he's king. It's Jesus and it's God. Okay, can we just live with that? And we're going to look at at four aspects of his kingship over the next four weeks. This week, especially his faithfulness. Here's the outline we're going to follow and chase. I'll just mention the first two briefly. Here's the outline as a whole, though. We're going to see in the end of 16, basically, the problem of sin continuing. The beginning of 17, the pronouncement of judgment. And then really, as 17 finishes, the provision of God so beautifully displayed for his people. Let's begin. Look at the problem of sin. It begins in 16, and basically it's personified in the person or the king of a, uh, of the northern kingdom, King Ahab. And I like to say this, everything just got exponentially worse. The false worship, the idolatrous practices. You see this in verse 30 of chapter 16 when it says that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. You see the same thing in verse 33. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So here's you might want to say the top of the list. We'll only say the bottom of the barrel. Can we say that? When it comes to kings, Ahab is, is just the worst of the worst. I think as you close out chapter 16, you find an interesting couplet of verses there. Actually, well, just one verse, verse 34, actually, about Jericho and this um, high hill of Bethel. You say, Todd, why is that in there? It seems like it's stuck in there, this idea that some other king, some other person is going to rebuild Jericho and he's going to do so at the cost of his firstborn and his youngest. And What's that got to do with Ahab and, and then, of course, Elijah? I think the author is simply saying something to us, that God's going to keep his word and judge Ahab just like he did when he kept his word here in verse 34. You see, verse 34 is actually a fulfillment of a promise or an oath That was given in Joshua 6. Did you know that? When Rahab was delivered and saved, Joshua said that if anyone tries to rebuild the city of Jericho, he'll do so at the cost of his sons. So years passed. Years passed, excuse me. But what happens here? This man tries to rebuild Jericho, and he does so at the cost of his sons, which is just what... God said would happen. I think it's an illustration that God's saying, and so Ahab, be warned. I will bring judgment upon your sins. And that leads us into Elijah's pronouncement of judgment. Notice what he says in chapter 17, verse 1. Here's the pronouncement of judgment that Elijah gives to King Ahab. 
As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, as you compare this with James, you'll find that Elijah prayed for um, probably about six months that it would not rain. I think in that prayer time, God had told Elijah, though it's not recorded in the scripture here, I'll honor this request. I'm going to bring judgment by not allowing rain to happen. But it's also in fulfillment of God's blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 28. If you were to go to Deuteronomy 28, verses 22 through 24, there God promises, if you don't follow my commands, I'll make the heavens like iron, the ground like bronze. I'll shut up the the skies and there'll be no dew, there'll be no rain. So I think what's happening here is this. Elijah prays that God would keep his word within this time frame to bring the nation back. And God says, I'll honor that. It was my promise, it was my commitment. I'm going to honor that in this, in this time frame. And so Elijah, on the authority of God's promise, goes to the king and says, King, there will be no rain except by my word. Now, understand what's happening in this judgment. Elijah's actually calling upon severe conditions for himself. You realize that? He lives in this land. He's also calling upon severe conditions for those that actually are following Yahweh. They're not in line with the king, and there are those in this midst, by the way. So he's actually calling for God to do something to help the whole, even though while God is judging the whole, and it's a help in the long term, he knows that in the short term it's going to be very difficult for many people. That's a lot of courage, isn't it? That's a lot of bravery. That's a lot of perspective. But that's what he's doing. He's actually asking God to keep his promise of judgment to the whole nation, even though he knew that in the middle of that it would be difficult for him. And as we get into verse 2, we see just how difficult it was. But this is where we notice the provision of God so beautifully displayed. Look at verse 2 and forward. The word of the Lord now came to Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. So even though there was no rain now for years, even though the brook's about to dry up, even though there's a famine, even though it's terrible conditions that Elijah actually asks for, knowing that that's really what's necessary to bring the nation back, God is providing for Elijah. And he does so by the brook via these ravens. They brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. That's a serious camping trip, isn't it? Just right there. But verse 7 says, After a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Notice something here just briefly. God here is keeping his promise to take care of Elijah. And he does so, first of all, through ravens. You would not think that a raven would be the kind of animal you would want to get your food from, would you? In fact, in the Bible, I think the Old Testament, generally speaking, ravens are considered an unclean type of animal or bird, right? And yet God uses this to bring Elijah his sustenance, his provision. And I think there's a reason why, in a minute we'll see, 
But just notice, first of all, this promise-keeping provision for Elijah. First of all, through an animal and a brook. But the next of all, through a pagan widow. Verse 8 says, the word of the Lord then came to him. This is in light of the fact that the brook was dried up now. What's he going to do? How's he going to eat and drink? How's he going to survive? Well, the Lord came to him and said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. By the way, Sidon is outside of the borders of Israel. It's actually where Ahab's wife was from. This is her hometown, Jezebel. This is her hometown. So God is sending Elijah to an unclean place. We would call them pagans in, in, in uh, Israel terms. So can you get the picture here? God's saying to Elijah symbolically through both the raven and the widow, Elijah, I can use anything to take care of you. (laughs) I can use birds that you think are unclean, and I can use people that aren't even part of our our family in places that aren't even part of our land. Like, Elijah, there's nothing too hard for me. So though there's no rain, and though we're judging the nation, though we're trying to bring them back, yes, you're speaking... Uh, my promises, even though it, ha- it affects you, I will take care of you, and there's nothing that's going to stop me from doing that. So it's a beautiful picture, actually. He goes to this widow outside of Israel's borders in the hometown of the wife of the king he just pronounced judgment on. And notice what God says here. He says, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So the widow was no different than the ravens to God. He commanded the ravens. He commands the widows. He commands things to happen, and they do. And so Elijah arose and went to Zarephath, verse 10 says. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. Now I want you to notice something, that there's a sense in this conversation that Elijah is selfish. He's not, but I hope you kind of sense that he is. I'll tell you why in a minute. Just watch what happens in this conversation. He meets the widow he knows there's a famine, he knows it's tough, and his first response is, bring me some water. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, in fact, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug, and, and now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Hey, it's our last muffin and then we're done, right? Look what he says. Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. That almost sounds selfish, doesn't it? I mean, she just said to him, hey, I'm on my last leg here. I got one loaf of bread, I've got one muffin left. I mean, he says, okay, yeah, great, but can you fix mine first? (laughs) What's happening with that? I think it's, it's Elijah trusting that God will keep his word and provide for him because that's what God's promise was. You make the pronouncement and I'll take care of you. I did it first of all by the brook with the ravens and now I'll do it through the widow. So he's actually in some sense saying God's promised to take care of me. So ma'am, just fix mine first because God said he would take care of me and I think it's through you right now. So it's kind of an odd situation here, kind of an odd conversation, but she does it. She's not a believer. She's not within God's covenant family here he said in verse 14 thus says the lord the god of israel and this is why she can make something for him first and not fear because the jar of flour shall not be spent it won't run out the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the lord sends rain upon the earth so he wasn't really selfish 
But he was committed to doing what God said, being in places where God could take care of him, and then knowing that God would keep this lady's supply, this widow's supply full as long as she needed it until there was no rain. And the Bible says in verse 15 that she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household, they ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Isn't this amazing how in the middle of this time of national judgment that was seen agriculturally, God still cared for his prophet. And I think we can say by that his remnant people, those who were listening to the prophet, those who weren't lining up to worship Baal and follow this worst of all king. God was caring for them. And the specific illustration here is how he did through, through the ravens and then this foreign widow. Which lets me know something. That God does care for his people. And he'll keep his word to do exactly that. Even if you take a 60% pay cut. Even if you're camping by a brook and you're getting fed by ravens. Or in the house of a foreigner who doesn't know the Lord. Guess what God has promised to do for his people. Take care of all their needs. But I find in the story that that is not the end of how God works. I call that promise-keeping provision. But I love what happens next almost more than what we just saw. And maybe that's because maybe the way God's wired me and my personality. But I love this last narrative because here we find God being faithful not only to keep his word to take care of his people but to keep his word to use his people as a light for the nations. Look what happens. Here's what I call mission-keeping provision. Because he's in the house with the widow and her son. They're taking care of Elijah, but they're not believers. And so I'm not sure how that works. And maybe it had awkward moments. I don't know. But after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, verse 17 says. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. It led to death. And then she kind of, kind of vents to him. What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. In other words, we're not part of your covenant family. We don't worship your God. So I guess we're now paying for that and you're going to cause the death of my son to remind me that I don't worship your God. What is this? What's going on? He said to her, give me your son. Now I want you to notice something in the following Uh, verses not a single time between verses 17 and 24 is the phrase according to the word of the lord mentioned but prior to verse 17 in verses 2 to 16 it's mentioned several times in other words god had promised to care for elijah and his remnant people even in the famine in the judgment he would be their god of provision but he had never promised to raise this woman's son are you with me He really, and I say this theologically accurate, he owes her nothing. He's not in debt to do something for her. So that's why there's no real sense in which I just say, well, God, you promised. Well, according to your word, based on what the Lord said, there's none of that here. In other words, Elijah's going to God and saying, God, just in your mercy and grace, and I'm going to use this phrase, would you just do something extra? Like, we know you'll keep your promise because that's what your word says you have. But God, you don't owe us anything here in one sense, but could you, to this foreign pagan widow, 
that you have used to provide for my needs. Could you provide for her needs now? And so he cries to the Lord in verse 20. It says in verse 19, he took him up from her arms and carried him to the upper chamber where he lodged. And he cries to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord. Didn't you see Elijah's lifestyle of prayer? Not just in praying for rain and not for rain, but here he's praying for this woman's son. Elijah was a man of prayer, wasn't he? Well, it says here that he asked the Lord three times, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Stretch himself out on the child three times. And verse 22 is beautiful. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Again, not because he owed it to him. There was no promise given previously that he had to do this. But here we see God's power and mercy. After we're already seeing his faithfulness and his promises. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. <clears throat> so Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber to the house and delivered him to his mother And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And now watch verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in in your mouth is truth. Isn't that a beautiful opportunity for God's power to be seen and for his name to be known and honored? In other words, we might use the word evangelism in our kind of circles. Something here is happening beyond just Elijah getting his needs met the mission of God is advancing to other people's languages tribes and nations and what did God promise in Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed now he primarily meant contextually through the seed that is Jesus but even secondarily we see times like this when Israel is a light to the nations and it it came in a very difficult moment but because God provided for Elijah through a foreign woman In that very provision, God accomplished his mission. It's just a beautiful picture of how the Lord works. So I call it promise-keeping provision for Elijah, as well as mission-keeping provision through Elijah. This is what's happening in this chapter. We see God's faithfulness, watch this, to his people and to his mission, front and center, don't we? He is faithful in doing both. And so that's why our our take-home truth just kind of emerges. It kind of surfaces. Could you read this with me again? It's really not hard to spot. It's clear in this chapter. Say it with me, would you? God takes care of his remnant people, even in the middle of national judgment. Now I want to leave it there and focus on one word for you. Just for a few minutes. And that's the word remnant. Because you may be thinking, Todd, why is that word in there? Why couldn't we just say God takes care of his people? Because in this storyline, the greater narrative, God is actually bringing judgment upon the nation as a whole. And within that nation, there are those who actually don't believe, even though they say they do. And then there are those who do believe and aren't following the wicked king. And they're suffering for it. And who is it that God protects and has always protected through Israel's ups and downs? It's always his remnant people. When the ten tribes were scattered, when the two tribes in the south were captured, 
But when people came back from exile, it was this remnant people that God had promised would always survive. And to this day, God has said, these are my people. There's always a a people, we'll call it this, there's always a possessing people in the middle of a professing people. That's what I mean by remnant people. Those who truly belong to God, he will take care of them to the very end. But he holds no obligation otherwise. In fact, let me just leave you with a, not leave you, let me give you this verse to kind of let this rest on you. This is a hard concept to grasp. It's one that can make us like, you know, wince a little bit. But Romans 8, 28 is a beautiful promise, isn't it? And we know that all things work together for good. Amen? But what does the next phrase say? To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, only those who are called, only those who are within God's family as genuine possessors can lay claim to Romans 8.28. It's the same principle we see here. Who is God going to care for in the middle of this, in this, in this famine, this judgment? He would care for his people, but they need to make sure they are his people. And so this is something I think we need to really kind of wrestle with. Are you a possessor or just a professor? Because those who just profess Christ, well, you know, I, I'm, I, I'll just lay claim to Christ because it's culturally acceptable. It's politically profitable. You could list other ways that the name of Christ benefits you, but you're not really a genuine born-again believer who's staked your eternal destination on the work and claims of Christ. You don't exclusively trust Him. You just kind of add Him to your list of hobbies. You've kind of thrown Him on the list of things that you hope will get you there one day. You don't really belong to God. You're not a genuine believer. I would warn you that the promises of God to his people do not include you. You are not guaranteed that everything will work for your good. Did you know that? And God has not promised that he would care for your needs. He has made those promises to his people. This is a stark reminder of the importance of knowing that we are in the family of God. So can I ask you a question? Are you in the remnant people of God? Are you in the family of God? Have you trusted Christ as your only way to be saved? Are you a legitimate, actual possessor of God's Holy Spirit by His grace and power through salvation? Or are you just a professor who kind of hangs around church people and the church building and Claims its benefits, but really you're, you're not really in. You're near, you're close, but you're not in. This was one of the things that dogged Israel forever, which is one of the reasons in Hebrews there are so many warning passages in which the writer of Hebrews tells us consistently, be careful, pay attention, watch out, because it's possible to be near and to be close and not really be in. So stark, eye-opening, 
throat gulping, I realize. But the text demands that we address this. Because God here is providing for his prophet and his remnant people who have said we will not follow the way of Baal. It's tough times, it's famine, it's difficult, but God kept his word every time to them and through them. Both his promise and his mission, he provided for both. Let me give you two affirming action points as we wrap things up in light of this text. This will be somewhat repetitious, but that's the way we learn. So let me just kind of review again in different words what we're saying this morning. First of all, in times of desperation, we can still have confidence in God's provision because He sees sovereignly. Isn't that good to know? That no matter how difficult, you can use the word low, how hard your situation may be, If you belong to God, He will care for you, period. And He can use anything to get that job done. A raven, a foreigner, a widow, a pay cut. God will not abandon His people. Here's some verses that I hope will just massage your heart with this beautiful truth. He told the disciples in Matthew 6.33, He said this, Seek first... My kingdom and its righteousness. And watch this. All these things will be added to you. And what are these things referring to? If you look at the context, basically the food, the shelter. In other words, what they need to live. He said, listen, just seek me. I'll take care of these things. Isn't that great to know? Here's what he said in Philippians 4.19. Paul's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen, church. Here's what Peter says that we can do knowing these promises. Cast all of our anxiety on him because what? Say it with me. He cares for you. These are verses to God's people telling us that no matter the situation, let's put God first. Let's prioritize his uh, agenda and he will take care of us. Admittedly, it may not be in the way you thought he should take care of you. Are, you. are you with me on that? We've all been in those moments, haven't we? But has God ever failed to care for his people? Not at all. What did David say? I've never seen the righteous hungry or his seed begging bread. So, in times of desperation, you can still have confidence in God's provision. He sees sovereignly and he will utilize and cause and ordain whatever he needs to move and act in ways to take care of you. But the second affirming action point is this. In times of desperation, we will still have opportunities for God's mission. He sends sovereignly. And as I, as I, as I watch this narrative unfold in 17... I ask myself this question, what if Elijah had said, you know, God, I'm not stepping outside the borders of Israel. I'm not going to a foreigner's house. I'm not, I mean, I, I, I could handle the unclean bird. I handled the raven thing, but I'm not going to an unclean person's house who's not even a believer. I'm not doing that. But it was, watch this, it was in the very mission that God showed his provision. And my mind went right to some 
families we've sent to various places in the last maybe 8 to 12 months. Could they have been more comfortable here? Could their needs have been met here? Well, well God can do anything, so we'll say yes to that. But their, the question is not, where will God meet our needs the best in the sense like I want the most comfort? The question is, what has God called us to do? And I think for these families, and you know who I'm talking about, we won't say them here publicly for security reasons, but these families we've sent to live in other parts of the globe, it's harder and tougher, no doubt. They're lonely. But you know what? Their provision is actually in the mission. And I would say to you, with all honesty, transparency, and probably when they hear this, they'll agree. Had they stayed, it would have been worse. Because there's more going on than just than God just saying, well, I'll just make sure you're coddled and, and taken care of. God has something to accomplish through us, and often in the mission, he shows his provision. My dad would say to me this several times. It's a quote you've heard. Where God guides, he provides. And I just want to lay upon you some, some gentle nudging here that sometimes we try to guard our own stuff, situation, opportunity, occasions so carefully that we actually get frustrated and discontent with all that God is providing because it's so self-centered, it's so self-directed, it has no sense of God's mission about it. We wonder why that is. I would say we need to turn that around and we'll find that God's provision is actually in the mission of making disciples. You may find that your contentment rises as you give some of your time away. That your finances actually, God supernaturally meets those needs when you begin to invest in, in his kingdom. You could name a number of things, but it's not in just trying to guard and protect. It's in actually using what we have, what we've been given for God's mission. In fact, let me just show you a verse that I think would, would prove this. It's Acts 8.1. It's a narrative verse. It's kind of odd in some ways. But I just remind you of what it shows us. That on the day that a great persecution began against the church... They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But what was God doing in scattering these believers? Well, there was a great famine about to come in Jerusalem. He was helping them avoid the famine. And he was accomplishing Acts 1-8, in which he said, you'll have received the Holy Spirit and you'll be witnesses of me in all these places. God had to send them on mission to actually enable them to see his provision. I think what happened in the scattering is many of them found other jobs, other homes, other places to live. And granted, for the first 300 years of the church, there was great persecution. So they didn't escape it perfectly. But they did find a way out of this initial moment of of difficulty uh, physically. And God did that in a way that enabled his mission to proceed. So do you see what's happening here? The provision came in the mission. And I just just want to kind of help you see that sometimes we get our eyes so, we have such a myopic view of things and we wonder, what, what, well, what's wrong? We should lift up our eyes and look at the fields. And often in going and sending and thinking outside of ourselves, in thinking about the mission that God has given us, we begin to see the provision God has given us. Food for thought. Let it nudge you, okay? This is what we see in this text here. God's promise-keeping provision and God's mission-keeping provision. This shouldn't surprise us, though, church. This is our God. This is our King. 
He's faithful. He has this unique, uncanny way of actually providing for us, even at the sa- while at the same time, he may be dealing judgment on things around us. Noah and the ark is a great example. In the story of Noah, who is saved? God's remnant people, correct? Eight of them in the ark, and yet what is God doing in the flood? He's judging the earth, correct? And yet within the time of judgment, and the ark's a symbol of salvation in the New Testament, God is actually saving his people. He's doing both at the same time. He's providing for his people while judging the whole. Interesting, isn't it? This is our faithful king. He does it in Elijah's day. He did it to the disciples, by the way. Imagine Jesus Christ sitting, talking to the disciples. He's saying to them, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. And by the way, he did come in offering the kingdom to the Jews, and they rejected him. And so now there's this, this, this partial blinding upon Israel, this judgment upon the nation. So God came, in one sense, in judgment upon Israel, and yet in another sense, he came in providing for Israel. And he told his disciples, I'll be with you to the end of the age. So he's providing his presence, his power, and yet he's saying, I'm sending you out as wolves, as, as lamb among wolves. It's going to be tough. It's difficult. But I think the greatest example of, of God showing us his faithfulness as our king is at the cross, in which he provided, he, he, he showed us, I'll take care of you, while at the same time, judging the very thing that should have damned us. Our sin, its penalty is death and hell. But God provided Jesus to take our penalty for us. And so in the cross, you see this terrible, ugly place of judgment, and yet this beautiful place of provision, don't you? For God's remnant people. And so All who believe have eternal life will never perish. The grace of God is seen in the face of Christ on the cross. What a beautiful provision. And yet, it's actually the place where God judged our sin once and for all. So do you see what we see in 1 Kings really isn't new for God? When God is judging the whole, He still provides for His remnant people. We see it all through the Bible, and he will provide for you today. My urging to you is make sure you're in God's remnant people. Make sure you belong to Jesus, that you have trusted in his provision for your soul in his work on the cross. And if you have, then can I say this to you? fully aware of of your needs and my needs and all that goes on in our difficulties, just take a breath and relax. God's got you. Amen? He's going to take care of you. He has promised He would. And His promise will be kept because He's our faithful King. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.